KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzet Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat, Kaf Bet Tammuz, Parashat Matot. I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell, and the Erev Shabbat program is dedicated in the memory of Shlomo <coughs> Yosef ben Shmuelchaim. Every year, Parashat Matot, the same parsha catches my eye, the same general idea. This year was a different nuance, thanks uh, to a large extent to my wife. And uh, in the background, something that I read recently in a certain journal, the message is what's important and not responding to the article in the journal. We all know the story of B'nai God and B'nai Ruven. They come to Moshe and they say, we want the land on the east bank of the Jordan River. It's good for our flocks of sheep. We have a lot of flocks of sheep. And Moshe is very upset. How are you going to stay here when your brothers are going in to fight war and you're going to stay on the other side? You're causing uh, the people to not be confident in moving into Eretz Israel. You're causing a repetition of the sin of the Meraglim who shot the confidence of the Jewish people vis-a-vis the decision to go into Eretz Israel, And they say, no, we will stay. We will go into Eretz Israel with B'nai Israel. We will fight the wars. And then we'll come back to the east bank of the Jordan River. That's the basic story. And these conditions are what eventually are agreed upon and in fact that's what we read that happens in Sefer Yoshua as well there's one point one major point that I want to discuss Rashi already points out the difference between how Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven present their counter offer to Moshe after he accuses them of being sinners and repeating Chetam Araglim, and the way Moshe answers them, answers their counteroffer. They approached him and they said, We will, be, we will build infe- gated areas for our flock and cities for our children. And the idea being, we'll leave our flock behind and our children behind. We don't need them when we go in to fight. And we will go in, we will go in the front of the camp and fight the wars. And until everybody gets their land, we're, we're not going to go back. In their statement, they put first the fenced-in areas for their flock and cities for their children, for their babies. Moshe, when he answers this counteroffer, which he accepts, he says, Build cities for your children and fenced-in areas for your flock. And Rashi points out, points this out, that they put their flock before their children. And Moshe wants to correct this. Put your children before your flock. I don't believe that this mistake of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven is a mistake 
which only expresses itself in this formulation of placing the flock before the children. I believe it comes across in this whole decision. Clearly we read, we see that the West Bank of the Jordan River is a preferable vis-a-vis the relationship with God. And so this request is problematic to begin with. Of course, the request was problematic because Moshe assumed that it meant that they weren't interested in fighting any more wars, and that was pushed aside. But we even see from Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven's response in Sefer Yoshua to their situation that they also realize there's a problem here. And there's this whole confrontation where Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven build this large, large Mizbeach, large altar on the bank of the Jordan River, which initially Bnei Israel view as very problematic because they are building a new center of sacrificial worship which is prohibited there's only one sacrificial center and that is in Shiloh and they go out to confront them militarily and then it's explained no we don't plan on using this altar for sacrificial purposes it's a sign to remind our children and your children that there's a connection between the two of us interesting spiritually to put yourself in a situation where you're not really connected to the to the people and to the mainland of Eretz Israel and the place where they worship it's an interesting choice why fix a broke a not broken situation with a problematic solution like this mizbeach this altar all right, they put themselves in a difficult position spiritually. They took the east bank of the Jordan of the Jordan River, which is not the same level of kedusha as the west bank of the Jordan River. They put themselves, their children, in a precarious situation where they're cut off from Am Yisrael, and they need a physical reminder to remind that there is a connection between the two peoples that live on either side of the Jordan River. But I want to put aside the issue of Eretz Yisrael. That's one of my hot issues, one of my hot buttons that I like to talk about a lot. But I want to talk about a different issue. And that is the issue of the children. Every time I look at this parsha, I talk about putting the flock before Eretz Yisrael. Putting your parnasa, your riches, perhaps as a priority in front of Eretz Yisrael. But, and this is a problem, and it's Eretz Yisrael and it's Am Yisrael, because when we look in Sefer Shoftim, we see that Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven are not so involved in the happenings of the people on the west side of the Jordan River, and Chana, and pardon me, not Chana, Devorah, and her Shirah, in Perakeh and Sefer Shoftim, she criticizes Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven's lack of participation in this great war that happened between Am Yisrael and Canaan. And she even hints to the fact, they're busy listening to the, the whistling of the flock. That's what they're into, that's where their head is. 
But beyond the problem with Eretz Yisrael, and beyond the problem with Am Yisrael, that the decision that Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven made impacted, their decision <coughs> impacts their children. And that is the first and foremost innovation that Rashi wants to point out to us. They put their flock before their children, not they put their flock before Eretz Yisrael, which they did, and not that they put their flock before Am Yisrael, which they did, but they put their flock before their very own children. And what does that mean? I want to talk about something that's very simple. Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven went into Eretz Yisrael for seven years that the land was conquered and seven years that the land was divided up amongst the tribes, the remaining tribes. For 14 years, they didn't go see their children. Now, I don't know exactly what happened. Did they have visits? Did they go back and forth? Was there some sort of communication? But clearly, whether there was or wasn't some sort of rotation, the mass of the people of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven, the mass of the fathers, were away from their children for 14 years. Why did they do this? Because they're very dedicated to their riches, to their wealth, to their careers. And then there's some problems that arise. Because they get back, this is a little bit of conjecture here, but bear with me, and their children, who they forgot to educate for the last 14 years, were living on the east bank of the Jordan River. Their fathers were out fighting a war, which didn't seem to impact them much, because they were sitting comfortably in their cities. Their fathers come back and tell them about the rest of our people on the west side of the Jordan River. And the sons... They're not so interested in listening. They're not so interested in listening because they haven't been a part of this people now for a long, long time. And you know what? They're not so interested in listening because they haven't seen these fathers in a really, really long time. And these fathers are very dedicated to them because they are interested in having a good parnasa for their sons. They're going to have big flocks of sheep and they're going to have large grazing areas for these sheep so that they can continue being mefarnas their families and their families' families for generations to come in these wonderful fields of the east bank of the Jordan River. But you know what? If a child doesn't see their father, they don't really have anything to do with their father. It's hard for them to communicate with their father. When the father comes and tells them, Oh, we left Egypt and we crossed the Jordan River. Oh, you should have seen how we crossed the Jordan River. And we fought all these amazing battles. And the sons say, Who are you? Where have you been? And then, how does the father, who's been so dedicated to the son, he's been making so much money 
or in this case working so hard, fighting the wars in order to guarantee the riches of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven on the east side of the Jordan River. He wants to show his son that he's dedicated to him, even though he's not there, he hasn't been there. So get something big. So in modern times, that would mean we'll get him a big, if it's a 16-year-old, a big car, and if it's a, if it's a 6-year-old, it's a big toy, it's the latest video game, We'll build a big Mizbeach because though Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven formulate tomorrow in the future generations your sons will say to our sons what is your connection to us and God and the God of Israel there's a border between us and your sons are going to stop our sons from fearing God. So there's Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven are trying to, as you, if you wish, put the blame on the Jews on the west bank of the Jordan River. But what they're really saying is that's going to work. Our sons, we smell it already. We feel it already. Our sons are disconnected. We're going to build a great big Mizbeach, something big, something grandiose, something that everybody will see, something that everyone will notice, and our sons will see, look how serious we are. We built a big, big Mizbeach, and they'll understand that we're connected. And they're not connected. And this is what we said already in Sefer Shoftim, we see that there's, there, there is no connection. These fathers who come back after 14 years are not able to impress upon their sons the connection. And whatever impression that they make is very weak because it doesn't pass down. And in future wars, Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven aren't participating already. And where does all of this stem from? A gap in education that the fathers who are dedicated to, the, to their wealth and their riches for the benefits of their sons didn't see their sons at all they didn't spend time with their sons for 14 years and we don't have to be concerned about the example we all know careers and people and families where things run like that father's not around because he's busy making money a lot of money so that later he can impress upon his kid with big toys and big vacations and big cars how much he's dedicated to him but the kid just wants his father and when the kid has his father he listens to his father he has a connection to his father he's interested in what his father is saying and the father doesn't have to compensate with big toys and big vacations and big mizbachot Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven put their flock, their wealth, before their children on so many levels. But in this Arab Shabbat program, we're talking about that level of spending time. They left the condition that they could get the east bank of the Jordan River and make sure that their wealth was guaranteed was leaving their families for 14 years. And they accepted this. They said, we're dedicated to our families. We'll go away for 14 years. We'll be able to keep the East Bank of the Jordan River and sustain our wealth and make our wealth grow. And what happened? The sons 
they already know that their sons are going to feel disconnected in the future because they haven't been able to impress upon their sons the connection. And they know it's only going to get worse. And it does get worse. And with that, we'll move along to Rav Tavori. Rav Moshe Kordaviro, the great Kabbalist, was born in 1522. Although we actually know very little about his early life, the name Kordaviro certainly suggests that his family was among the people that were expelled from Spain from Cordova, and therefore his family name became Kordaviro. We know that he moved to Tzvat and became a student of Rabbi Yosef Cairo in the world of Halacha. He was also a student of Rabbi Shlomo Alkevitz, the author of L'Chadodi in the world of Kabbalah. Rabbi Yosef Cairo mentions him with great respect and admiration in his Svarim in the Chuvos, known as Avkas Rochel and other works as well. According to some sources, Moshe Kordaviro, sometimes known by his initials as the Ramak, was one of the four people that received smicha from the Mahari Beirav when he was 18 years old. If you'll remember the story in Sfat of the famous controversy over the issue of smicha, where the Rabbanut of Sfat, led by Mahari Ben Rav, wanted to re-establish the concept of smicha based upon a, a certain Rambam, the Rabbanut of Yerushalayim, led by the Maharal Bach, Maharenu Harav Lebi Ibn Chavib, strongly objected to this procedure. But a number of people, four people allegedly, were given smicha at that time. The two most famous are Rabbi Yosef Cairo himself. Some say that's why he was called Maran, because Maran are the initials, Meresh Nismach, he got smicha from 200 scholars that were gathered together in Sfat to reestablish the smicha. And Rabbi Moshe of Trani, as I said, in the, one of the versions is that Rabbi Moshe Kordaviro was one of those people that got smicha at the time. The famous Talmidim of Rabbi Moshe Kordaviro were all world famous in the world of Kabbalah. For example, Rabbi Chaim Vital was a student of the Ramak, and there were other Mikubalim who wrote Svarim as well, who were direct students. One of the students who was a student in an unusual sense was Rebmenachem Azaria of Pano. He wrote that the Ramak, Ramosha Kordavir, was his Rav Muvak. However, he only knew him really from writings. If you remember, the Ramam also said that he was a Talmud of the Rimigash. And very possibly could be only through uh, reports and writings of these people were they actually Talmudim. The Rav Moshe Kadaviro passed away before the Shulchan Aruch, before the Beis Yosef. He passed away in as this week on Chav Gimel Tammuz, on 
in the year 1570, which means he was only 48 years old when he was Nifter. The recognition of his godless was mentioned by the Beis Yosef, among others, who said at the funeral that Kan Ganuz Aron HaTorah, the Ark itself of Torah, is now being buried. According to a version that I heard when I was very young, and recently I read in the introduction of a modern scholar who wrote it in, the intru- in his introduction to the works of Rabbi Moshe Kedaviro, Rabbi Yosef Cairo said at the funeral, Ani meyid olav shamayim va'aretz Rabbi Yosef Cairo said about the Ramak that I can testify that the man never sinned. So they asked him, how could it be? The Gemara says, En misa belochet. There's no such thing as dying totally innocent of sin. And Rabbi Yosef Cairo re- responded with a homiletic interpretation of a Pasuk in Chumash. V'chi yev ish chet mishpat maves v'humas v'saliso asoleitz. The real translation and the pshat of the Pasuk of course, is if a person is guilty of a sin of death, you should, after you kill him, you have to make sure you bury him, you, you hang him on a tree, but then you take him off to bury him. But Rabbi Yosef Cairo said, The word chait indeed means sin. But sometimes the word chait, especially in the verb form, can mean to cleanse, to, plur- to purify. V'chitesa is hamizbeach. You should clean the mizbeach. So he says, V'chiyya v'ish chait mishpat maves v'humas. If a person is innocent of any mishpat maves, and nevertheless he dies, V'salisa osaletz, you should hang it on the tree. In other words, the only sin that we can account for is the fact that Adam HaRishon ate from the tree from which he was enjoined not to eat. And when the Gemara means ein misa b'lochet, it means that had sin not be come into this world, there would not have been this gezeira, this decree that every human being dies. So, this respect, and even if it be a legend that Rabbi Yosef Cairo had for the Ramak, well proves the esteem in which he was held in other people's eyes. The Chida in Shem HaGdolim reports that the Ramak had Gilui Eliyahu, and he even tells secrets of how he had this tremendous chus that Eliyahu Navi appeared to him. There are many svarim that were written by Rabbi Moshe Kodaviro. One of them is one of the more famous svarim. It's called Pardes Rimonim. It's a sefer that he worked on for seven years. He published the sefer when he was very young. There is some sort of a tradition that we do not study Kabbalah until the age of 40. The fact is that the Ramak printed the Sefer on Kabbalah before he was 30. So apparently he himself did not feel that you should not learn Kabbalah before a certain age. Other Sfarim that were written by Ramash Kodavir, in fact he was quite prolific, were a parish on Siddur, which was called Tefillah Lemoshe, a parish in the Haggadah, 
Perushun Yerushalmi. He was also a Rosh Hashiva and wrote Svarim as, a, for example, a Perush on the Talmud Yerushalmi. He was known as a Gadol Bateira. He was a Dayan in Svat. He was a Rosh Hashiva in Svat. So no one could question his credentials either in the world of Nigla or Nistar. We all know of the Ramak in the world of Nistar, in the world of Kabbalah. Although we do not have much today that's written in the world of Nigla, but it was certainly recognized by people of his time and earlier gener- and later generations that he was a Gadol Batara, as Rabbi, the Beis Yosef himself said, Kan Ganuz Arona Torah, and we know that he received smicha according to that understanding of the smicha of Mari Ben Rav when he was only eighteen years old. The main doctrines of Rav Moshe are obviously connected with Kabbalah. In many books, they have tried to cap- encapsulate the basic ideas of Rav Moshe Kordaviro. And, for example, the, the, uh, the encyclopedia, the, the Encyclopedia Judaica, says that it, he had a major attempt to synthesize and construct a speculative Kabbalistic system. He tried to organize the world of Kabbalah into a system to explain how man himself contains within himself the possibility of emulating HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The, the, the concept of a halachta bidracha of a mitati odei is a very major concept in Judaism. In one of the Rav's articles, in Rayonot al the Rav mentioned that this may be the central point of Judaism, the, com- the concept of Halachta Bidrachav. While the explanation of Halachta Bidrachav generally refers to the Midas of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in the Kabbalistic system, it referred to the Sviros, to those ten emanations from which somehow the world was created. The Ramak tried to explain how the human being himself, in fact, the Olam Katan, the Adam HaKadmon, himself is a representative of the Esos and therefore, with his own being, he can emulate HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Some people have claimed, and there's a great deal of literature about it, is this close to pantheism? Did, was Spinoza influenced by the Ramak or not? There is a fairly recent book that is a, bi- a uh, intellectual biography of the Ramak, written by Rav Yosef and Shlomo, and he really surveyed the literature that preceded him and tried to show where some of, of the people had really made terrible historical mistakes. Others misunderstood the, 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 their understanding of his Kabbalah. 
and he has there a whole discussion if indeed any credence can be made to the can be said to given to the belief that Spinoza was influenced by the Ramak. One of the more famous Svarim that is, at least in my experience, used more than the classic Kabbalistic Svarim, was is a sefer called Tomer Dvora. Tomer Dvora is a Musar sefer, which was more used, more commonly used, in the world of the Musi Yeshivas. For years, Ramosha Kodavir was known as a Gon, as a Tzaddik, and a Mekubal. In a certain sense, those of the people stu- studied Kabbalah went to the direction of the Ari, who came after Ramosha Kodavir, seemed to have created a new understanding, a new way of learning Kabbalah. So, the world of the uh, Pardes Rimonim and other Sfarim was left to a very small group of, of Kabbalistic scholars. But Tomer Dvora was introduced into the Musser world. Reb Simcha Zissel of Kelm was very instrumental in A, learning the Tomer Dvora and also in mentioning or recommending that other people learn it as well. It is told that people recommended the Sefer from early generations. The Shalom HaKadosh said, Anyone who is accustomed to reading the Sefer to saying it once a week or once a month is assured a place in Olam Haba. But later generations, the, as I said, Reb Simcha Zissel of Kelm certainly introduced this Sefer into the world of the Musi Yeshivas. Legend has it that one of the great Mashgichim of a more modern generation, Rav Eliyahu Lopian, Rav Eliyahu Lopian was the the British Mashgiach uh, of the Yeshiva of Gateshead, who went to Eretz Israel, became a world-famous Mashgiach of Kfar Hasidim. He was at other places as well. He wrote a sefer the, of his Sichot called Lev Eliyahu. It is reported that this Rebbe Eliopian came to the Kever, to the grave of the Ramak, and said at the grave, Anachnu lomdim sefer bikviut. We learn the sefer regularly. We received a lot of benefit from it. Hasaba otanu The Saba, the Zayda of Kelm, told us to learn it Shabbat every Friday evening. And we did we did so. Very, very carefully. Therefore, he appealed to Ramosha Kadavira, we learn your safer, therefore we wish for you to intercede on our behalf. The reputation of the Ramak in the world of Kabbalah is well known. He was also a Gaon, a Tzaddik, and a great leader 
in the world of modern Musar through Reb Simcha Zissel and Reb El Yerlopen. His yard site is Chav Gimel Tammuz in the year 1570. Think of how much the man accomplished. The list of his Svarim include many, many other major works. And he was nifter at the age of, 40, of 48. The, those that study Kabbalah must use his Svarim. Those that don't use the Svarim, many do learn the Tomer Dvorah, and of course much can be gained from it. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. To all the fathers listening out there, to all the mothers who have influence on the fathers, we all understand the importance of careers and parnasa. We have to understand the borders and the ramifications of our decisions. We have to spend time with our children. Time and face-to-face is the greatest influence that we have on our children. When they see us, when they interact with us, that's how they're influenced by us. When we don't see them, we can't impact them. And B'nai God and B'nai Ruven, dedicated to their flock and their riches, thought they could influence their children by seeing them not so often and telling them great stories and building them a great Mizbeach. But it didn't happen. The children weren't influenced. The children were a little bit distant from their fathers. This almost stranger in their lives. A lesson for us all to know, to spend time with our children, good time with our children, valuable time with our children, but mostly lots of time with our children. And with that, Shabbat Shalom.